This is The Drive Podcast with Josh Graham. Welcome to the internet, my friend. How can I help you? Check out The Drive weekday afternoons at 3 on WSJS Sports. Begin simulation. Initiate scenario. Here we go. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. to have you on a Monday drive where I'm still ailing from the sunburn I sustained from my first ever trip to Merlefest over the weekend. No regrets though. Spelled like the guy who's revealing his neckline. R-A-G-R-E-T-S. Boy, do those folks in Wilkesboro know how to throw a party. Also over the weekend. We knew the Carolina Panthers were going to make a move at quarterback. We just didn't know if it was going to be through the draft or by trading for Baker Mayfield because those were the two options on Friday night. And rather than swinging for the fences and bringing in the vet, Carolina played it safe by trading into the third round to take Matt Corral. Personally, and I've been clear on this for the last few months, I would have taken Baker. I thought it was the best option available to Carolina, I didn't think it would cost that much. I think Baker somehow has become underrated during this offseason. I think it would have been a good upgrade. But I understand the appeal of going down this rookie path. I'm not blind to that. The Panthers chose to play it safe. Adding Baker would have been disruptive. Almost in every sense. Financially, you're not going to keep Darnold at $18, $19 million. And also keep Baker. Sure, the Browns were going to pay a chunk of his salary, but not all of it. And likely you wouldn't be able to keep both guys on the roster, so that would have been a headache. And you got to deal with some of the politics of it too. If you keep Baker, can you keep, or if you bring in Baker, can you keep Darnold? Is that even a possibility? Can you have both those guys coexisting going into camp? So, it would quite literally blow up the quarterback room. And financially, you'd have a lot of things that you have to figure out. Adding Corral, you don't have to do any of that. None of that applies to the Corral situation. He could play. He could not. He's cheap. And unlike P.J. Walker and Sam Darnold, he has a contract that goes beyond 2022. So there's some security in that as well. Matt Rule thinks it's a perfect situation. For Corral. He says Darnold is still the starter, but there's no pressure on Corral, which he finds ideal. Sometimes when you take those guys at six, the pressure's so great to put them on the field that you know they they you know they they, they can get ruined. Um, I think this is the most amazing opportunity for a guy that we think has first round talent who has played at a high level to come in here, grow his body, develop his body. Uh, learn under Sam, learn under PJ, two tre- tremendous professional players, learn the system from the ground up with Ben, and uh, whenever that time is ready, that he's ready to play, um, you know, he'll get his opportunity. PJ Walker, a tremendous professional player. Matt Rule, of course, probably referring to his time in the XFL. XFL legend, roughneck for life. You know the deal. There is a scenario it could be Corral's job, though. It's a, it's a gamble. It's a roll of the dice. 
It's playing it safe. You're hoping for the best. But the comp that I saw most common leading up to the draft, usually you like to compare a quarterback to one of the starters in the league. You're not really going to flash on the screen. Daniel Jeremiah, Mel Kuyper breaking it down. Here's his comp, Chase Daniel. Oh, okay. That's not really great television. The comp I most commonly saw was Russell Wilson. Now, does that mean Matt Corral is going to become Russell Wilson? No. But there are some similarities. Mobile quarterback, you know, similar skill set, skinny coming right out of college. Some would view them undersized, even though Matt Corral's at 6'2", and Russell Wilson generously six foot, many places. I think have them listed at 5'11". The most... The thing that links them most, though, is that they have a lightning quick release. That's the thing that you look at with Corral and it stands out. That release is going to translate. It's a very real thing. And there's a lot to like. Remember a few weeks ago, we heard Ben McAdoo saying he's a take a swing type of guy. Well, on Sirius XM radio earlier today, Scott Fitterer was being interviewed and Here's the quote that he gave. Ben McAdoo has a really good eye for quarterbacks, and he had a lot of conviction about Matt Corral. Remember, McAdoo in 2018 had at the very top of his board Josh Allen, number one, Lamar Jackson, number two. Josh Allen was the third quarterback taken in that draft. Lamar was the fifth. But McAdoo had Allen and Lamar at the top of his board which would have been a very unpopular opinion. People would have laughed McAdoo out of the room if they were made more public at the time in 2018. I'm sure people did when they saw those quotes in a New York Post story, but he was right, and he might be right here. There are rumors that Corral was the number one quarterback on the Panthers' board, and we'll see if Darren Gant has any information on that from Panthers.com. He's going to join us at 5.30. He's a Hall of Fame voter. But there is a scenario that this is Corral's job. Going back to the Russell Wilson deal, let's not forget Russell Wilson was drafted in the third round, kind of like Matt Corral was here. And he took over in training camp. He was more prepared than Pete Carroll and the staff expected that he would, and they decided to start him right out of the gate. And it happens every now and then. We saw it with Russell Wilson. We saw it with Dak Prescott. It happens from time to time, usually every five years or so. We haven't seen that in recent years, so maybe we're due. Maybe this is the time that it happens. And Corral played in the best conference in college football, so there's a chance he could be prepared and ready to go right out of the shoot. But that's not the most likely scenario here. The Panthers chose to play it safe. And in doing so, Rule believes that the right way to go is to see it through with Sam Darnold. At least give him the shot to bounce back from last year. If you're going to invest all that capital in him a year ago like they did, don't just kick him to the curb a year later like they did with Teddy Bridgewater. Learn from that mistake. Stay committed to a decision that you made. Tie your horse to that or tie yourself to your decisions and see it through one way or another. David Tepper, does he mean what he say? says when he says Sam Darnold's a very good quarterback and rule the same way and Scott Fitterer the same way? Or are they just saying stuff? You got Ikiakuanu at left tackle 
and you picked up Austin Corbett from the Rams and Bradley Bozeman from the Ravens, that O-line is not bad anymore. So that's no longer an excuse as long as they stay healthy. Christian McCaffrey, speaking of staying healthy, if you get him more, what excuse do you have? They got off to a great start. Then those things started to go south. Paradis gets hurt at center. McCaffrey gets hurt. J.C. Horn gets hurt, and the season goes south. And even Sam Darnold gets hurt. So they're going to give him that opportunity. But there are no more excuses here because now you got somebody to push you in camp, and it's Matt Corral, and they thought that was the better option than bringing in Baker Mayfield. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I understand it. They chose to play it safe. On Twitter at WSJS Sports, if you want in, what are your thoughts on the Panthers draft? 336-777-1600. Will Dalton taking your calls at 777-1600. He's the producer of this show. For the second straight Sunday, the Tar Heels received some very good news. After getting four of their five starters back, we learned about a week ago. I felt North Carolina was going to be very good, but obviously they had a gaping, large, red-bearded roll that they needed to have filled, that they needed to have replaced that still gives me pause about these so-called national title or bust expectations that are being attached to this team. I felt North Carolina was one player away from becoming a frighteningly dominant team. But the problem was they didn't have any openings. They didn't have any scholarships available to go get that player. And they would be the most appealing option in the transfer portal if they're able to recruit it. But they have already had all 13 of their scholarships spoken for. And the deadline was yesterday. Somebody had to transfer out in order for that spot to become free and for you to go into the portal and feasibly get your pick of the litter to bring somebody in who wants to play for a team that looks like a ready-made national title contender. And that happened. Kerwin Walton transferred out. He entered the portal. And usually we just talk about this from the team perspective, but for the, for a moment, I want to talk about it from the player perspective. Because I do think this is not just a good thing for North Carolina. I think this is a good thing for Kerwin Walton. Works out best for, best for both parties. He had fallen out of favor. The COVID season was weird. And we, see, we saw guys who emerged in a weird basketball season that took steps back the following year. Carter Witt at Wake Forest, a good example of that. And he transferred and he goes to Furman, which... It's a good spot for him. Good conference. He's going to get a lot of playing time, probably play really well in the Southern Conference. Kerwin Walton's an example of that in North Carolina. He had some moments his freshman season, but it was a weird, disjointed year, maybe not most representative of what the rest of your career is going to look like, especially when there's a coaching change from year one to year two of your career there. Hubert Davis taking over for Roy Williams. He fell out of favor. And he averaged just 13 minutes a game, never more than 20 minutes in any game in the calendar year 2022. So it was time for him to go elsewhere. It didn't look like he was going to get any more minutes next year. So he'll find a place he'll likely be a key contributor on. And that's good for him. And North Carolina now can find a starter to replace Brady Manick. Because that was never really realistic to expect Puff Johnson to do. I get it. His name's Puff, and he's Cam Johnson's brother. And he had some moments in the national title game. But value the large sample size here. There's a reason why he only averaged 10 minutes a game last year. And expecting him to step in for a guy who, before he ever stepped foot on campus in Chapel Hill, had started over 100 games in college and had hit hundreds of threes, one of the best three-point shooters in the history of the Big 12 Conference, for a guy who has only six career threes and is two inches shorter 
and has never made a start in college, to step in and be that guy was unrealistic in my mind. So I think it's good for Puff Johnson and good for Carolina that he's going to come off the bench if you find somebody to play the four. And I think there are some good options out there. Now, Carolina's a little late to the party to get Terrence Shannon. He transfers from Texas Tech to Illinois. There's a kid from South Dakota State, shouts to the Jackrabbits, named Shireman, who announced his top five today. It didn't include Carolina. Carolina late to the party there. Duke and Clemson were among Shireman's top five. But there is a perfect fit out there that I would have circled twice if I'm a Carolina fan, and that's Murray State's K.J. Williams. He's a perfect fit. He averaged 18 points a game for a really good program. The Racers were awesome last year, a fun watch, a decent league that they had, multiple teams making the tournament, and he's 6'10", and he's a career 36% three-point shooter. I think his career three-point shooter percentage would have him second on the Tar Heel roster. Maybe even first. I'll have to go back and look real quick. Once they address that, let's say hypothetically they get uh, K.J. Williams. I don't see any more holes on this team. At that point, I would say they're the number one team in the nation preseason, and they deserve it. Everybody else is back. This is a team that should win a lot of games. Be the favorite to win the ACC. Be the favorite to win the national title. They are one player away. They're one K.J. Williams away from being a dominant frighteningly dominant team. Dude, you are so money. But you don't even know it. But you do. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Time really does fly. Posted this on social media earlier today. A year ago... I got down on one knee, proposed to Sarah Bradford. I'm going to get married next month. On the same day, I learned also on social media in the last hour or so, our next guest going to be presented a first place plaque by the AS or the APSE, which is the Associated Press Sports Editors, um, for great work done when it comes to column writing. That does not surprise us. I actually have it written down here. That Luke DeCock, every time I bring him on from the Raleigh News and Observer, I describe him as an award-winning columnist because he's won awards here in the triad. That's where the National Sports Media Association's based and just won another award, which doesn't surprise us because of the great work that he's done over the years. Luke, congratulations on that. Always do appreciate your time with us. And to maximize that time, I want to go back to some of the reporting you had a couple weeks ago where you said the finalist for the ACC headquarters... Greensboro, where it's currently at, of course, Charlotte and Orlando. And what you described was a bit of a gridlock between some of the uh, traditional members of the ACC and some of the newer Big East members of the ACC, some of the interests that they have with this particular issue. We thought it would be addressed by the end of April, yet here we are. What's the latest you've learned about it? I mean, we, we thought it was going to be addressed by the end of January. Uh, the, the fact that... that this is uh, has, has dragged on this long uh, is a, is you know it's it's not a great look for the ACC because here we are at the the most arguably the most important moment in the history of college sports is the NCAA is restructuring itself and rewriting its constitution and NIL is changing the entire landscape of how we think about athletes and how they're tied to schools and uh, the ACC's revenue gap with the Big Ten and SEC SEC continues to grow. 
And we've now spent whatever it is, eight, nine months, you know, arguing about something that in the end is immaterial. Where the conference office is does not matter. Obviously, Greensboro would like it to be in Greensboro, and you can make arguments for other places. But the reality that the physical location of the ACC office is in the end immaterial. It's the kind of thing that presidents and chancellors try to change as a power play. And some of your some of the people who wanted it out of Greensboro tried this power play and now we're deadlocked. My understanding is they need 10 votes and there are roughly six entrenched positions on each side. Some who want to go to Charlotte, uh, some who want to take what's apparently a very lucrative offer from Orlando. And if, if you have six on each side and somehow Notre Dame gets a full vote, riddle me that. If you have six on each side, you've only got three swing votes. It's impossible to get to 10. So I don't know whether they knew this going in and this was the plan to let this drag out and then just end up staying in Greensboro by default, or Jim Phillips committed the cardinal sin of any committee chairman, which is to call for a vote before you know what the votes are uh, and, and, and end up like this. So I, I don't know the answer to that. I know that the ACC and its leadership have wasted an extraordinary amount of time on this nothing burger of an issue at a time when there are much bigger fish to fry. Yeah, and what's what could make the most hilarious case out of it is if that gridlock, if neither side is willing to budge, the Big East members hypothetically here wanting it out of North Carolina, and that means Charlotte as well, isn't suitable for them because Orlando, as you mentioned, a little bit more lucrative of an option for them, and the traditional members say, no, we're not going to go for anything outside the state there's a scenario where they could just decide to remain in Greensboro. It's an, it almost sounds like this, like uh, the analogy I made once before was that uh, when it, you, when the referee used to go under the hood in football, the longer they were under the hood, the more you felt like the call in the field might stand. And that might be what we got here. If neither side could come to a conclusion, they might just throw their hands up and say, well, I guess we're staying in Greensboro. Do you think that's possible? I, I don't know that it is only because Phillips went into this very clearly stating that he had a fiduciary responsibility to determine the best location for the office. When you say something like that, it's basically like putting your hand out. Now, my understanding is Greensboro's done everything the ACC could have asked of it to stay there, uh, which, which is great. I mean, that's a, a great what the, the, the city and, and county should do. But in the end, I think the ACC, having gone through this process and paid these consultants, is going to have to have some sort of action to justify all of the money and time they've spent, uh, which, which I know is not what people in Greensboro necessarily want to hear. But I think the, the main takeaway from, from all of this is that I think most people, especially within sort of the old quote-unquote ACC, and, and let me caution you, Josh. I don't. I don't know for a fact that this is a breakdown between old and new ACC. Sure, sure. The you know there's there's what we know are there are sort of two factions wedged against each other, but uh, you know the, the 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 you you get to this point in the process, you kind of have to show something for it. I think eventually they'll get there, uh, but the fact that it's taken as long as it has, when this is something that should have been dealt with quickly, uh, just suggests. I, you know, I, I write this sometimes and people push back that there are divisions within the ACC that make it difficult to govern. Certainly that seemed to be the case under Swafford. I don't mean that sort of in a, a, a negative way that people have agendas or whatever. I just think you've got schools that arrive at this juncture with, and presidents and chancellors that arrive at this juncture with very differing perspectives 
on what they think this conference should be. And if you've been around the ACC for a long time, you may have one vision. If you come from outside, you may have another. Uh, that doesn't mean that everyone's set in those in the, in those paths. There may be people within the old ACC who think that everything needs to go, and there may be people who came into the ACC at a later date and felt like this is a conference we really wanted to join. Why would we go about renovating it if we wanted to join it so badly? So, you know, I, I don't know that any of this is as clear cut and, and uh, black and white as, as anyone would like it to be. And I think that's part of why it's taken so long is there's a lot of sort of degrees to this that make it difficult to reach a consensus on something that shouldn't be that difficult to reach a consensus on. And I think what you end up with is if you're going to make a decision by financial reasons, you go to Florida. If you're going to make a decision for logistical reasons, you go to Charlotte. Uh, but, but, but the two sides, uh, whoever's on them have become very entrenched. And I'll point this out to you as well, Josh, very quickly before we, before we move on to something else. Yeah, the optics of the league that refused to play championships within North Carolina during HB2 and moved them to Florida, among other places, packing up and leaving North Carolina to go to Florida in the middle of the don't, gay, don't say gay bill controversy down there mm-hmm. would just be a, a chef's kiss of hypocrisy. I mean, it would just make a mockery of everything that this league once stood for and has ever stood for. So I think there's probably in, in some of the smarter, more savvy president's minds, and Lord knows that intelligence is not a prerequisite for being a college president. I think that probably weighs heavy for some of them. It's Luke Tacock with us here, the award-winning columnist from the Raleigh News and Observer on Twitter at Luke Tacock, newsobserver.com. You can read his stuff and in the pages of the Observer. So I spelled this out. A lot of people might be casual hockey fans and only watch when the postseason arrives and when the Canes are pretty good. But the Canes, even though they've only been around here in the Carolinas for about a quarter century, they've had quite a bit of history specifically with the Boston Bruins in postseason play. The Canes have made the playoffs eight times now, and five of those eight playoff appearances they have faced or will have faced the Boston Bruins, and the Bruins have taken three of those first four meetings. You've covered at least the last handful of these Canes-Bruins matchups. What's your favorite memory of covering this? I'm not going to call it a rivalry, but we'll just say these these two clubs that frequently meet each other in the postseason. Yeah, I, I missed the first series in 99. That was the first ever NHL playoff game played in North Carolina in Greensboro. Yep. Uh, against the Bruins. Uh, no, I, I, I think to me, that, and I think for anyone who's been around, the enduring memory is, is game six in Boston, or game seven in Boston uh, in 2009 uh, when the Scott Walker scored in overtime uh, a, a day or two after they had publicly acknowledged that his wife had been uh, diagnosed with cancer. I think that was just the, the 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 epitome of sort of man meeting moment, and that came after all of the Game Five hubbub, uh, where Aaron Ward had had, had or Scott Walker had cold cocked Aaron yeah. Ward. It was a tremendous sort of soap opera ending to that series, and uh, and you couldn't make it up, and uh, and obviously that the 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 Hurricanes ended up uh, running the emotional tank dry then. And losing to the to a very good Penguins team in the conference finals, getting swept by a very good Penguins team. Uh, but but the difference I think this year between this and then the last two times they played the Bruins, who ended their season in 2019 in the conference finals and 2020 in the in the Toronto bubble in the the Hurricanes' second playoff round. It was the first round because they added the preliminary round because of COVID. Right. And the Hurricanes swept the Rangers. 
the difference between this year and the last two eliminations at the hands of the Bruins is there, there was a period of time where the Bruins sort of had a, a mojo over the Hurricanes. There was Brad Marchand mocking Justin Williams by holding up a seed to his chest as Williams went to the penalty box for the 18th time. And Dougie Hamilton had his weird ex-spouse thing going on with Boston where he could never really get his act together against them because of that history and him starting his career there and how he left there. And the, the Bruins were, quite frankly, a more experienced, tougher, grittier, uh, heavier team than the Hurricanes. And that really showed in, in the series in 2020 when the Hurricanes had a couple injuries and the, the Bruins just sort of out them, even with Tuka Rask basically retiring in the middle of the series. Yeah. So you put all that together, what happened this year is two things. One, the Hurricanes got older and grittier and, and deeper. Uh, and, and in part, the lessons learned from the Boston series, more the Tampa series last year, but they still apply. And they absolutely dominated the Bruins in the regular season. And, and, and it's easy in the playoffs to discount the regular season. There's only so much that matters. The Bruins got better over the course of the year. That's all true. But the Hurricanes went into those games against the Bruins, especially the first one in October, with the point to prove that we are a different team and you are not going to push us around any longer. And they bounced the Bruins around like bowling pins in that first game in October. They shut them out. It was their sixth straight win, I think, of nine to open the season. It was a, a statement game, as much of a statement as you can make in October. And then you had the whole Marshand and Vincent Trocek and, and their sort of Twitter, Instagram beef. Uh, you know, Brad Marchand is a, uh, one of the great agitators in the history of the NHL, and he knows as well as anybody, you don't beast down. That was a sign of respect that I'm not going to say the Bruins were scared of the Hurricanes, but they certainly didn't look down on them anymore. So you put all that together, and you have the Hurricanes with a better record. They have some goaltending issues that they have to deal with here, but they have home ice advantage. If they can stay out of the penalty box, they should be able to win their home games maybe steal one on the road, take care of this in five games. Exciting stuff. And going back to the March on stuff, like when he made those comments, it was before gas prices really went up. I think jokes on March I think I would rather have a Prius than a Lamborghini in today's economy. Just going to point that out as well. Uh, Luke DeCock, <laughs> appreciate your time as always. And congrats on the awards. You don't need me to tell you they're well-deserved, but they are well-deserved. And uh, I hope we can catch up sometime soon. You got it, Josh. Take care. There you go. He's on Twitter. At Luke DeConk, Raleigh News and Observer, online newsobserver.com. You talk like a crazy person. You have sexually transmitted crazy mouth. You're on the drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. I want to go a bit off the beaten path here for a moment before trying to get into draft grades for the Carolina Panthers now that the draft is in the books. I went to Merlefest for the first time over the weekend, had listeners for years telling me, Josh, you love music. You need to figure out a way to get to Wilkesboro. And for one reason or another, the draft weekend or the pandemic, moving things around, I haven't been able to get there. Haven't been able to go. Then I made it out on Saturday, and it exceeded all expectations that I had, and my expectations were pretty high. 
it was a terrific Saturday slate. But the nightcap, the headliner Saturday night, was Old Crow Medicine Show, who I had not seen before. And I've been to a lot of shows, Will Dalton, but I don't think I've experienced something as cool as watching Old Crow perform Wagon Wheel live in the state of North Carolina, and specifically at Merle Fest. And it had me thinking, because when I got into my car, I went with my brother, he was driving, so I pulled up the old Twitter when I got back into the car with him, and one of the first things I saw on my feed was Garth Brooks, a video of Garth Brooks Saturday night performing at Tiger Stadium at LSU, Colin Baton Rouge, which, by the way, was originally a song written by Ben Bush, and or Sam Bush, excuse me, who was a part of the headlining group at the uh, at Merle Fest on Saturday night. They didn't perform Colin Baton Rouge, getting beside the point, but it had me thinking, is there a song where location matters so much that you can imagine it'd be so cool to see live at a specific place? Like a song that has a location where location matters so much to the song, or maybe the artist himself, him or herself, or just a band altogether, is there something that comes to mind with that? Like the example being, you're watching Colin Baton Rouge, Garth Brooks perform it in the heart of Baton Rouge at Tiger Stadium at LSU, or watching Wagon Wheel performed at Merle Fest in North Carolina. I guess maybe Johnson City, Tennessee would apply to that because of the line at the end of that song. Raleigh mentioned in it, maybe that would make some sense. I'm just thinking. A song where it would be cool to watch it at a specific place. It heightens the experience. Maybe Billy Joel, you watching him perform New York State of Mind at Yankee Stadium or Madison Square Garden. That might stand out. If you're watching Wayne Newton perform in Las Vegas. 336-777-1600 on Twitter at WSJS Sports. I, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it right now, but it was one of the coolest things that I have experienced watching Old Crow perform that song and as a proud North Carolinian, that song meaning something to me and the fact that it was being performed live was a special thing, in my opinion. You could also tweet into the show at WSJS Sports. It was cool to see Colin Hay, who was formerly the front man at Men at Work. Uh, the album hour is something that really stands up. Merle Fest, they just do such a knock-up job in Wilkesboro. I, I can't suggest it any more than I have already done so far. It's a special experience, and it's something I would strongly recommend. But let's go to the phones real quickly here. Michael in advance wants in. Is there an example of something that you would put into the category of a Billy Joel performing New York State of Mind at MSG or Yankee Stadium or watching Wagon Wheel in the state of North Carolina by Old Crow Medicine Show or watching even, as I brought up Saturday night, Colin Baton Rouge, Garth Brooks performing it at Tiger Stadium at LSU? 
Michael in Winston-Salem, you're up. Oh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, actually, sticking with Garth Brooks, he was in uh, Ireland a couple years back and sang the song Ireland while in Ireland. I think it would be just kind of a goosebumps feeling song. That is pretty cool. So are you a big Garth fan? Uh, yes, sir. Okay. So would that be top of your list? How many times have you seen Garth? I've only had a chance to go once. I went with him in Greensboro a couple of years ago uh, and was planning on going to go to a stadium tour in Charlotte, but it got canceled because of the said pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good example. I, I, I appreciate the call, Michael. Yeah, that, that would make a lot of sense. It's a little bit of a deep cut. Garf song. Going Ireland. 336-777-1600 if you want in. We'll get one more for now. John and Winston-Salem, what do you have to add? Hey, John. Hello. Hey, this is John in Greensboro. Hey, um, I actually uh, worked at Merle Fest. Uh, it's a great event, great family event. Uh, brought my kids. We had a wonderful weekend. I uh, remember I actually lived in San Francisco for many years. I worked at the Fillmore and the Warfield historic music venues uh, where Bill Graham got his start and actually really created the modern rock and roll concert business. Uh, the Grateful Dead played their first show at that Fillmore Auditorium, the original space in 1965 as a fundraiser for the Mind Troop, uh, San Francisco Mind Troop. But uh, the song I'm thinking of is a Grateful Dead song called I'm Gone. Oh, excuse me. He's Gone. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it was performed by the Black Crows on the 10-year anniversary of Jerry Garcia's death at the Fillmore in 2005. So it's sort of a somber occasion, but uh, they ended up doing about a half dozen Grateful Dead uh, covers that night, which was not their normal set list. And it was all to honor Jerry Garcia, and it was very emotional. John, did you see the album hour where they paid homage to the Grateful Dead Saturday? We were there for that. Yeah, Working Man's Dead. That was awesome. That was pretty cool. Well, I appreciate the call. It's a really good example. And the volunteers, those who work at Merle Fest, they, they make the event very special, too. So thank you for that as well. Eric writes in, saw the Red Hot Chili Peppers Californication Tour in San Francisco. Jay Austin, cheeseburger in paradise anywhere in the Florida Keys. Hmm. Maybe, see, this had me thinking. If we're going to go Jimmy Buffett, hearing Jimmy Buffett sing it's 5 o'clock somewhere at 5 o'clock, doesn't matter where you're at. If it's 5 o'clock and Jimmy Buffett is performing that song yeah, it might be tough to beat. Or, or, going back to Billy Joel, if Billy Joel is performing Piano Man at 9 o'clock on a Saturday, that could elevate things as well. I like this topic. 336-777-1600 if anybody has something else to add in. Before we get back, we should probably talk about this Panthers draft. Because this is what happens across sports media the Monday after the draft. Let me see your draft grades. A, B, C, D, F. This is what we're going to do. We're going to grade your draft, even though we're not going to know how good these drafts are for years. We're not going to know the answer to that. We're going to attach some grades to them now, and no one's ever going to go back and check how these grades actually work. 
How they look years from now, that's not what we're going to do. We're just going to throw them out here because hashtag content. But for this class, it's not going to be very hard to grade it for Carolina. You've got Iki Aquanu, six overall, Matt Corral, third round pick, and then a bunch of dudes that I'm not even that interested in talking about taking later in the draft, with all due respect. This is what warrants a success for Iki Aquanu. Staying healthy, that's number one, and being good enough to earn a second contract, a la what Taylor Moten's done on the right side. The bar is so freaking low. It's like being a single guy today, like Will. The bar's low, Will. Like, do you shower daily? Yes, I, I, I attempt to do okay, that. Okay, yeah. you shower daily. Do you have any kids? Thankfully, I do not. Have you murdered anybody? Not today. You're in the top 2%. The, you're in the 99 percentile of guys out there. Like, you are not just dateable. You and also you're not three hundred pounds. You're 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 a decent looking guy. Yeah, yeah. Like you are in the ninety ninth percentile. The bar is so freaking low for 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 single guys out here, and the bar is low for being a great left tackle for the Carolina Panthers, who have had a different left tackle every single year since Jordan Gross retired in two thousand thirteen. The bar is low, so that's what warrants success. Just getting to a second contract. And staying healthy, that's what you need to do, Iki Aquanu. And if Iki does that, then this is already a good draft. It's a successful draft. Here's what makes it a transformative, great draft. If Matt Corral becomes a starter. Not a great starter. Not Russell Wilson. Not a Hall of Famer. But if he becomes a starter. If you find that in the third round, it's a transformative draft. Carolina would have found answers, starters, at the two most important positions in the sport. And that's not something I'm ruling out. We've never seen how Sam Darnold's going to react facing pressure like this. We've never seen him pushed by anybody in training camp. Everything's always been given to him. And getting anything from the day three guys will be a bonus. I, I, I look, they have a common thread between them. Their measurables are impressive which shape a high upside for all of them. But here's the problem. Their productivity in college do not match those measurables. So you're just rolling dice, hoping that one of these guys pans out. So I'm not going to attach a letter grade to this class, but here's what I will do. Let's go through Matt Rule's first two drafts where I'll attach a letter grade to those based on the last couple of years. And let's start in 2020 when Carolina went 7-for-7 seven seven defense this was the the pandemic stay from uh, stay at home draft where everybody had the war rooms at home and we got to look into everybody's houses. The Zoom draft. Yeah, the Zoom draft. Here's how I grade it. B. A B. You found two starters on defense. Derek Brown, he's had some highs. He's had some lows. I happen to think he's pretty good. You trade back into the second round after taking Etor Grossmatos, who's still a bit of an unknown you take Jeremy Chin. That's a huge plus. Six of the seven guys are still on the team. Bravion Roy, a six-round find, is a rotation player on the defensive line in the middle of the defensive line. Troy Pride Jr. going to be rotating out there at corner. Kenny Robinson rotating at safety. They, they found a lot of dudes in that draft, and you got two starters, so that's a B in my book. As for 2021, 
C. A lot is still unknown. J.C. Horn played in a few games. He got hurt. Their second-round pick, Terrace Marshall Jr., got hurt. You get Brady Christensen. That's a plus in my view. Tommy Trimble, that's a really good get in the fourth round. Still a lot of concerns. You, you drafted, I think, 11 guys in that draft, so it's a lot of bodies, a lot of chances to hit. It's a C for me right now because of so many unknowns. Anyone not on medication? No. Nope. The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. I want to shake up Graham's grades today. Rather than grading things that your favorite sports teams did over the weekend, I'm going to grade Merle Fest. The good, the bad, the ugly from my first experience there out in Wilkesboro on Saturday. But before we get into that, the Carolina Hurricanes open up postseason play tonight with the Boston Bruins. And I think... Maybe this is the Canes fan inside of me coming out. I think the third time is going to be the charm for Carolina against Boston. The Bruins have won twice in the last three years against Carolina. They've met four times in the postseason all time since the Canes came to the Carolinas 25 years ago. But I think the Canes are going to take it this time. They whipped up on Boston this year. Every game they played, Carolina came out a winner with a plus 13 goal differential in the games with the Bees. Plus, Carolina wants Boston. Many of these guys, they were on the team in 2019 as young guys getting swept in the Eastern Conference Finals. Ajo is 21. Svetch was an 18-year-old rookie. Now these guys have been around. Jacob Slavin was 23, 24 years old. Now they've been around, and they know what postseason hockey is like, and they want the Bruins, and they want to get over this hurdle. I think Carolina's the better team, and I think the cream is going to rise to the top. Carolina in six against the Bees. Now let's get into a special Merle Fest edition of Graham's Grade. Every week is a test for your favorite sports teams. We don't need no education. Who passed the test? If one of y'all says some silly ass name. Who dropped the ball? I don't know. Josh Graham has the answers. I think you're very condescending and a know-it-all. Hey, Time for Graham's Grades. A through F. My first time at Merle Fest. This is what I experienced. The good and the bad, starting with the very good. A. Watching Old Crow Medicine Show at Merle Fest. I was unaware of the backstory going into the weekend, but Will, this is what's cool to me. So apparently, this is as legend goes Old Crow Medicine Show was an undiscovered bluegrass band in the late 1990s in Boone and that's where Doc Watson of namesake Merlefest, his son who passed away 
decades ago. I think the first Merle Fest was like an 88 or 89. Uh, was in honor of his son who passed away. Doc and Merle Watson. This is their festival. Doc, a boon guy. His daughter, I believe, might have heard Old Crow on a corner and said, well, this sounds like the traditional stuff that my dad loves. Invited him to go hear the Old Crow on a corner one time. And Doc was emotional when he heard them and thought they were great. Invited them on the spot to perform at Merle Fest. This would have been back in 2000. And a lot of people believe that's what launched Old Crow's career. They hadn't been back, I don't think, since 2014. But when they returned, it was so cool because they apparently didn't have one of the bigger stages, obviously, in 2000 when they were just starting. So to pay homage to that, they went near the water fountain at the central part of the the Wilkes County campus, the Wilkes Community College campus. And as I was walking out of supper, I noticed a little bit of a crowd was forming near that fountain. And Old Crow just had a 30-minute impromptu show at around 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And it had this Masters-like vibe to it where everybody's so polite and it's family-centric, almost feels kind of exclusive for whatever reason. And when they got done performing, everybody just let them walk away. Nobody flooded them. Nobody flocked them. Just respected their space and let them walk away gracefully. And they were great at night. And I asked this question earlier, and I think it's a good one. It's one of the cooler experiences I've had as a music lover and a proud North Carolinian watching Old Crow perform Wagon Wheel in the state of North Carolina, specifically at Merle Fest. Like, the the place matters. The fact that you hear that band perform in that place, that place being the state of North Carolina, that's what elevates the song. What other examples are there of that. I brought up Garth Brooks performing Saturday night in Baton Rouge and performing Call in Baton Rouge at Tiger Stadium at LSU. That's something that would come to mind too. I had that thought with Old Crow and I thought it was a really cool deal. B. The Album Hour. When I told folks I'm going to Merle Fest, one of the first things that many of them told me, oh, you're going Saturday? You need to catch the Album Hour. When you get there, you need to go to the hillside and you lay down your blanket early because that's going to get really crowded. And they were right. It did. And even though I'm not the biggest Grateful Dead fan, having them play that entire classic album from the 70s was super cool. And everybody who was on the bill that day and in the nightcap, they would show up like a, 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 and play some of these songs like Sam Bush would be there playing the banjo and one of the members of Old Crow would be there playing on a couple songs and they would have some covers in there so they play some Dolly Parton or some Aretha Franklin or some Foo Fighters in honor of Taylor Hawkins who passed away in the last couple of months. Just a really cool deal. There was even a Rolling Stones cover in there. That's something to look forward to every single year when you get the top artists together at the band or at the festival and they're all playing an entire album through, and it just so happened to be a Grateful Dead album on Saturday. C. The alcohol policy. So, this is a C because I'm conflicted on it. You have that Masters-like atmosphere because they do some things to keep it 
feeling exclusive, feeling special. The Masters, you can't use your phone when you're there. And it's kind of a bit of a trade-off. They could have more people at the tournament. They turn it away because they feel it might take away from the atmosphere. At Merlefest, they could definitely make more money if they sold alcohol at the venue, but they decided they want to stay committed to, committed to the family atmosphere. I was talking to one of the folks that run Merlefest and have for decades, and they said it's a conversation they had with Doc Watson way back when. They could make more money by selling alcohol, but they want this to be for families. They don't want it to get too rowdy. And it's not that hard to walk out into the parking lot and enjoy a few brews if you should want to, like I may or may not have done uh, after the album hour on Saturday. Can Cannot confirm nor deny what I did there, but the alcohol policy, it's a C. D. Spring weather in North Carolina. Now, this might confuse you because spring weather, mostly really good in North Carolina. Probably not great for festival weather, though, because or for a, a music festival in general, because it's unpredictable and it changes so much. So Saturday, there's a chance of rain. Then it was going to turn into 80 plus degree temperatures. And at night was going to get close to the low 50s, high 40s. How do you dress for that? What's the play? So what I decided to do was I'm going to wear a t-shirt and some shorts, pack a hoodie, and have a hat on as well so I'm prepared for the rain. And it was a dry fit hoodie, not to brag, but just getting ready for the rain to fall. And then when I plant a couple of lawn chairs out for at the main stage so I have a good seat for the nightcap, I'll just leave my jacket there for when it's hot. Even in doing that, I'm wearing that jacket at night, but without pants on, which again, it was 80 degrees just a few hours before, I was seeing my breath out there on Saturday night. So I don't know what the right play is. Spring weather, North Carolina, got to be a little bit more consistent. Also, I got sunburned, so I'm still bitter about that too. It's just rough all the way around for you, wasn't it? It's not rough. It's just weather you part. You got you got to maneuver. You got to maneuver, and it makes it really hard to maneuver. F. I love Colin Hay. See, I was a huge fan of Scrubs, and you got the episode where he's playing Overkill across the entire episode, and minute work they got some hits, but his on-stage diatribes. <sighs> Shut up and play your songs. Shut up and play your songs. In between every song, he had to tell a story. And it almost seemed like he was bragging. Like, oh, yeah. By the way, friends with Paul McCartney and Ringo. And then he would go through another thing. He's like, oh, yeah, I went to this place and they recognized me in this African village. Okay, cool deal. Can you please play Overkill now? And he didn't even play Overkill. He played a couple minute work songs, but then he ran out of time. And I wonder why he ran out of time. Maybe because... Between every song, we had a five-minute story in between it that I don't think we needed at all. Word to all the artists out there. Shut up and play the songs. You know how people got mad about shut up and dribble when it comes to sports? I have no issue saying shut up and play your songs 
to the musicians out there because I've seen way too many concerts that just get ruined by the artists feeling like we are there for any other purpose than hearing their music. Ben Folds and Winston sitting on a piano. I paid a lot of money for this show and reading an entire chapter of one of his books sitting there on a piano. Not what I'm there for, Ben. I want to hear you play Army. Please play Army. I appreciate that. Jason Mraz was really bad this way. John Mayer, Bono, classically bad with it. Colin Hay as well. Please, please just play your music. That's why I'm here. Well, and I've been to some shows where the artist would play like a handful of songs and then like maybe for 30 seconds, just little, no little problem back and forth. How's the- everybody doing in Wilkesboro? Oh, right. thanks for having me, Merle Fest. That type of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, a monologue. Yes. <laughs> a full radio segment. Between every song. The only thing missing was a tease. After I play Down <laughs> Under, I'll tell you why the Panthers having a really good draft here. I'll tell you why I'm friends with Paul McCartney. Keep it tuned to Merlefest. You're on the drive with Josh Graham. Proceed slowly and with caution on WSJS Sports. I've done it. I've successfully showed restraint where today and yesterday... I clicked on exactly zero stories that had in the title draft grade. Haven't done it. I've resisted. I know it's easy content like guys, for guys like Darren Gant, who joins us now for Panthers.com. He's a Hall of Fame voter. Darren, rather than breaking down what these guys in the draft are going to do, the guys that the Panthers just drafted this past weekend, when none of us really have the answer to that, Let's actually look at the last two classes. Now, these are not finished products either, but they're Matt Rule's first two classes, and we have more information about them, frankly, than we do about the 2022 class, obviously. So let's start with the all-defensive class of 2020. Seven defensive players were taken. Six remain on the roster right now. How would you grade the 2020 Panthers class? I I think... 2020 is probably a solid B student. You've got two guys out of that group. And and really, any more, I I think anything you get out of a second-day pick, fourth round and down, anything you get out of that is a bonus. I mean, right now, every team is talking themselves into, oh, we've got this role for this guy. But you can't really count on fourth, fifth, sixth-round picks to make an impact on your roster. It just The math is not in your favor. So when you look back at these things, you look at the first couple rounds and you say, what they get? And anytime you get two guys, the quality of Derek Brown and Jeremy Chin, I think you feel pretty good about that, honestly. You, you, Derek is still getting better as a player, and I think getting benched late in the year kind of got his attention. Um, you know, and I think Jeremy obviously is just a good, solid NFL safety. They think he could become even better, but even if he doesn't get any better now, he's on Mike Minner trajectory. So to the point of, okay, you know, this guy's going to be a good starter for you for seven, eight, nine years, and that's okay. 2021, it's a little bit more difficult. We're a year removed, and the right. first round and second round picks that Carolina had. 
We didn't see a heck of a lot of last year, but when you talk about day two, day three picks that have shown something, Brady Christensen in round three saw a lot of him. Tommy Trimble, man, what what that that turned out to be a pretty strong pit for Carolina. How would you grade twenty twenty one early on? Early, it's fine, and I say that mostly assuming J.C. Horn's going to come back healthy, stay healthy, and get back to being the J.C. Horn we saw the first three games of the year, who was really good, and I it kind of got lost in the course of last week, but I circled up and talked to J.C. If you want to talk to J.C. Horn, you got to get to the stadium at like 7 in the morning, so I talked to him last Thursday morning at 7 and wrote about him, and it, it gets covered up in the draft, and I get that, but it was worth circling back to Panthers.com and taking a look at because he is a guy who ought to be a difference maker on a team. And, I mean, because it's not ideal that he got hurt last year, obviously, but when you look at it in the context of this season, it's almost like having two first-rounders because you, you didn't really get a full year uh, of J.C. last year. And I, and I think as you look at those guys, it's too soon to say. I mean, there are people like – you know, I think Davion Nixon, before he got hurt middle of the last year in practice one afternoon, uh, was showing signs that he was going to become a productive rotational defensive lineman. You know, Keith Taylor's got a little pop about him and, and might factor into this cornerback mix still. But again, probably too soon to say on something from last year. You know, I, I think honestly, and, and your point is a valid one. You've got to go back three, four years to grade drafts. Was the Panthers' 2019 draft very good? <laughs> no, it was not. The first-round pick was good. Let's not talk about yeah. the rest of it. it. It was like the Cam Newton draft year. That first one you nailed. You you crushed that. The rest isn't, eh, not so much. But in fairness, I mean, and listen, it's easy to bang on Marty Herney, especially since he's not here anymore. But in fairness to him, look back a year prior to that. And that 2018 draft gave you D.J. Moore and Dante Jackson and Ian Thomas and Marquise Haynes, who are still on the roster, and Jermaine Carter and Andre Smith, who are still out there playing in the league. So that that was not a bad draft right there for everybody's friend, Martin J. Herney. Darren Gant with us here from Panthers.com. So let's transition things to Matt Corral, where I saw this quote that Fitterer gave to Sirius XM NFL Radio saying, quote, Ben McAdoo is a really good eye for quarterbacks, and he had a lot of conviction about Matt Corral. And Ben McAdoo, easy guy to bang on because of how he looks and being yeah. in the Big Apple and not really being that good of a head coach. But what a lot of people tend to forget, whether it be Norv Turner, Ben McAdoo, or otherwise, if you are a head coach in the NFL, odds are it's because you did a lot of things right to get there. And his two seasons as Eli Manning's offensive coordinator – were two of Eli Manning's best seasons out of his 16-year mm -hmm. career. And when you look at the year after he was fired, 2018 draft, he was quoted in a New York Post story where he gave his rankings of quarterbacks that year, and that was the Sam Darnold-Baker Mayfield draft where they were both taken mm -hmm. in the top three. His top quarterback, Josh Allen. His second best quarterback that year, Lamar Jackson. It's a pretty good evaluation I don't know how much you know about the Panthers draft board, but how high up do you believe Matt Corral to be on it? Uh, I, I, we sent out a newsletter this morning catching up all the weekend's news uh, to the people who are in our subscriber base, and you should definitely get on Panthers.com and do that in case you haven't already. And, and I said, without giving away institutional secrets, Matt Corral was the fourth quarterback taken 
Matt Corral was not the fourth quarterback on the Carolina Panthers draft board. I'll just leave it at that for now. You never know. We might tell you more of that story later. But he's a guy they liked. I mean, and, and they had a high grade on. I think it's reasonable to suggest that he was among the top couple of quarterbacks. And when they talked before the draft about guys they would be comfortable taking in the first round, I mean, if they would have been in a spot where Iki Aquanu, gift from the gods, didn't just fall right into their lap, I think they would have been, you know, sitting there talking about, do we take Matt Corral six? And, you know, they didn't have to, and they were fortunate to get Iki and were fortunate to what I think get pretty good value at 94. I mean, you give up next year's three, but if Matt Corral turns into the kind of guy Ben McAdoo thinks he could be, then, you know, well worth it, I would think. I mean, uh, again, I go back to, you know, late picks aren't worth that much to me, and if you think next year's fours or next year's threes worth this year's four, that kind of thing, yeah, yeah, sure. If you can get a quarterback trading what they traded to get him, I, I think you do it all day, every day. He does. He gets that ball out so fast and he's smart and he does he's got that vibe about him I mean that people follow him and and ultimately in a quarterback that's what you want we'll see if it works out you know it's reasonable to be worried about how little he is um he's 6'2 but he's very very slightly built and, and you'd love to see him get bigger you'd love to see him be a little thicker especially run around the way he does but I I think it's reasonable to be optimistic about the trajectory for Matt Corral? I don't think. Darren Gant's with us here. The price, you mentioned how cheap it was to get um, yeah. Matt Corral, considering the price tag or, I guess, the the evaluation Carolina had for him. That's a lot more than they would have had to given up or had to give up to bring in Baker Mayfield, according to a lot of reports out there. Why do you think going the Corral path appealed more to Carolina than trading for Baker Mayfield? Well, for one thing, Matt Corral's going to make about $18 million over the next four years instead of just this year. I think that's, you know, or probably a lot less than 18, honestly. Um, it's finances are a factor here. I mean, and you can't take that in a, you can't create that in a vacuum when it comes to Baker Mayfield. Every equation includes, oh, yeah, and also he's making a guaranteed $19 million. Now, if if people wanted to trade Sam Darnold for Baker Mayfield straight up, that's a different thing because then the money balances out. But you can't you can't equate it because I mean, right now, honestly, if you wanted to add Baker Mayfield, you've either got to get Cleveland to pay a lot of the freight or get Sam off the roster to be able to afford all the other stuff you still need to do and want to do. So I, I just think it's it's for where they are. If you think, are they contending this year for a playoff berth or a Super Bowl? You know, this roster's getting better and it's deeper, but probably not necessarily um, quite that level of expectation yet. I mean, if they were one guy away and you thought Baker Mayfield was that guy, then go ahead and do it. But I, I don't know that they necessarily believe that that's where they are. You know, they're not prepared to challenge the top couple of teams in, in the NFC. I mean, it's fair to think they're better. But I, I just and Baker Mayfield could possibly make them better. I mean, if you get the version you got in Cleveland in 2020. But you know, again, you can't take finances out of that thing, and that affects every single part of that decision. Darren Gant with us here from Panthers.com. Do we know how high on the board Iki Aquanu was for the Panthers? <laughs> Pretty high. Um, 
He, I mean, he was the top tackle on the board for a team that really wanted a tackle. So, yeah, really, really high. And, yeah, these guys always hate being pinned down. Uh, but I imagine if the Carolina Panthers were picking first overall instead of sixth overall, the result could very well been the same. I, I really do believe that. I mean, they just love him. I mean, you hear, and, and you've probably heard Fitter and everybody else, the word conviction gets thrown out a lot in draft rooms. They have conviction about Ike Aquano. James Campen made a reputation in Green Bay for coaching up a bunch of fourth-rounders like David Bakhtiari and turn them into pro bowlers. And that's a mouthful there. I almost tripped over that one. But Campen's always coached mid-round guys and made them better. He's never had one like this. He really hasn't. And there aren't many like this. I. I know it's easy to say, oh, he's just fired up because he's a local kid and a great story and, you know, good talker and colorful and does all this other stuff. And all that's true. But this guy was one of the best couple of players in this draft. And I think they consider themselves extremely fortunate to get him at six. Last thing for you, Darren. So I experienced my first Merle Fest over the weekend. Still a little go. bit sunburnt. Spring weather, it's great in North Carolina, but probably not the best for festivals when you consider it's 80 degrees at around 3.30 in the afternoon, and then at 9.30 at night, I can see my breath, and it's 48, 49 degrees <laughs> as Old Crow Medicine Show's belting out wagon wheel. This is the question I asked the audience today, and gotten a lot of feedback on this. I got goosebumps thinking about like what I was feeling Saturday night. Been to a lot of shows but hearing Old Crow perform Wagon Wheel in the state of North Carolina and at Merlefest, no less, is an experience that might be as cool as anything I've seen because of me being a North Carolinian, that song meaning a lot to the state of North Carolina, and us being in the state of North Carolina as they're performing it. And I started, I, and then when I got in my car, I looked at my phone, and the first thing that popped up on my Twitter feed that night was a video of Garth Brooks performing Colin Baton Rouge. Shouts to Sam Bush, by the way, who helped write the original of that song, and he performed Saturday night in uh, in uh, uh, Wilkesboro as well. But it was Garth Brooks at Tiger Stadium at LSU in Baton Rouge performing Colin Baton Rouge. Yeah, it's and, pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's about as cool as it gets when you start thinking about it. So I just wanted to ask you, like, when I say coolest performance of a song that you've seen, Darren, as somebody who loves music the way you do, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Oh, the the combination of setting and scene. I mean, and part of it is you've heard me talk about Frank Turner. He has he's played some shows, and I've been to a number of them. There was one where he had a local kid who was fighting cancer, and we passed him around over our heads while Frank sang, and, and the kid was all into it. All he wanted to do was crowd surf at a Frank Turner show, and I looked at my friend who uh, Jordan Rodriguez was with me at that show, oh, wow. actually, our, our dear friend from The Athletic, mm -hmm. and Jordan and I, and I was like, we literally lifted up our fellow man. This is not a normal thing that we did here, but stuff like that's cool. I mean, it, it, a lot of it is about who you're with, and uh, the time of your life you're at, I mean, my wife and I have had moments at concerts where it's just like, it doesn't get any better than this. Right now, right here, right now, this is about as good as it gets. So, yeah, I mean, the, the combination of setting and scene and company, that all goes into it. But uh, that's good stuff. And by the way, in the spirit of music, I would be remiss 
if I didn't thank my opening act today. I appreciate Luke DeCock, the APSE columnist of the year, warming the crowd up for me here today since I'm the headliner on this show, obviously. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I already had written down, like, Luke DeCock, award-winning columnist, joining us on the show today, and that was before... I learned Before that he won, he won an award today. The award. That's right. It's it's pretty it's a pretty big deal, and uh, Luke is a great guy to have on. Uh, so when you said moment in your life with you and your wife, what was this? What was the band or the song you were thinking about there? Well, this. I mean, I could say Barry White and drive this show right off the rails <laughs> into the ditch. I don't think you want me to do that, do you? No. We'll, <laughs> hey there. We'll just, We'll we'll just leave this PG for the afternoon drive audience. How about that? We'll, <laughs> uh, kind of like Merlefest. They, they make it. They they keep it PG. We we it, no alcohol here. here. You go. But but honestly, here here's the tip. On now that you know, the key to festivals is dress in layers. And every time you finish one of them big festival beers, you go to the water truck and fill that vessel up with water and drink that before you buy anything else. Smart man, Darren so, Gant. There's your Darren Gant guide to music festival you're a grizzled vet and uh i appreciate that uh that grizzliness that you have there, that you bring there you go thanks buddy yeah man